0: Brian? What are you doing now? Oh, hey, Chris. I'm building an ark. Oh, okay. Wait a second. What was that? The rains, Chris. We're talking biblical downpour here in Austin, and I am just preparing. It
1: rained for one day.
0: When all is swept away in the flood, you'll be happy we have this ark to save us. But... I'm loading it up with two of every
1: Blu-ray and plenty of spare players. I mean, we'll be able to watch movies forever aboard this magnificent ark. But, Brian, you are aware you're building the wrong type of ark, right? Wait, what? You just put together a scale model of the Lost Ark from Raiders. Pretty sure you got that kit from SkyMall. Shit. I've got some beer.
0: Two of each, please. Cyber Cersei's and online Oberins. Welcome to another highly intriguing episode of Digital Noise here on one of Us.net. This is the weekly Blu-ray DVD review podcast that's almost exactly like Game of Thrones. It is? Well, I mean, if the Iron Throne was a recliner always positioned in front of an HDTV, then
1: yes. I am taking off the Sean Bean mask you made me wear.
0: Yeah, no, you don't want to wear that. <laughs> that's like wearing a red shirt. Spoiler. Which you're also wearing. So yes, you're 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 in deep shit. You know what? We're basically the night's watch. That was, that's, you know what? If we were smarter, we would have called the show Night's Watch. Oh well. I'm your host, mm. Brian Salisbury, Lord of the Criterion Kingdom and Protector of the VHS Realm, <laughs> and I am joined by the Master of Media, the Keeper of the Blues, Sir Christopher Lawrence of
1: Cox. I feel like I should come up with something that makes me your arch enemy, but I don't know.
0: I don't know. I don't know if we oppose each other. I think I'm the Master of Coin and the, you are the Hand of the King. The
1: Violator see, of VHS. Oh, uh. see, yes, that would do it. <laughs>
0: or or uh, Beta Slayer. Oh my God,
1: Beta Slayer!
0: The Dark Lord of DVD. <laughs> I love it. I love it, guys. I want to remind you that digital noise, just like all of our content on oneofus.net, is available on iTunes. Just search for One of Us in the podcast section. We're also on Stitcher. If you're not a big iTunes user, you can follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. You can also follow the website at oneofusnet, and you can like the website on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash oneofusnet. And also, big announcement: as of yesterday, we have launched our incentive package for subscribers. There is a uh, a post and a video stuck right to the top of the main page. You can't miss it. Uh, go there and figure out at what level you get what incentives. And if
1: you're not already subscribing, this would be a great time to do it because look at all the stuff you get. All kinds of stuff. And you know what? I know the video is a little long, but watch it. It really is. We tried to make it funny for you and make sure you stick around past the credits at the end because it's filled with bloopers of us being embarrassing and a little drunk.
0: We may have a blooper reel at the end. <laughs> it's, it's not entirely certain, except that it's entirely certain. It's
1: absolutely certain.
0: So definitely jump on that. If you have a few extra shekels to give, even at the $2 a month red shirt level, yeah, they all have... Geek names, all the levels. Even at the $2 red shirt level, you still get a lot of great stuff. So definitely check that out. Just our way of giving back to you and uh, thanking you for your support of oneofus.net. Hey, by the way, speaking of supporting oneofus.net, this episode is brought to you by Rocksaw Studios. RockSauce creates gorgeous apps and products that people actually want to use. They start with extensive user experience to make product the market wants. And then their amazing design team makes the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. So whether you're ready to start your project looking to schedule a speaking event or have a couple of questions for the team, reach out to them, www.rocksaucestudios.com and get a little saucy.
1: You know what doesn't hurt about rocksauce.com? They're super sweet, awesome people as well. Yes, and you know they've been—they've
0: been incredibly supportive of our website since day when one.
1: Talk about your people showing support! Those guys have been like going above and beyond to say we really like what you guys do here. We want to help.
0: So. Yeah, they—we uh, co-hosted an event with them before South by, and just last week they let us use their conference room uh, to do our live NFL draft inside the locker broadcast when the internet at my house went out. So I mean, huh. th- these are really incredible people, and we appreciate their support to no end. But now it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers. We call... The (laughs) Letterboxd. You've got mail. The Letterboxd. Yes, thank you, Torgo. And our first question comes from my favorite name to mispronounce, Nicodem Bredlich. Jesus. Who asks, what actor or actress do you like so much that you would watch anything with
1: them in it? Torgo.
0: Torgo! (laughs) Moving on to the next question!
1: (laughs) No, that's just because he keeps sending me all these, like, awkward fan love letters, so... uh, Well, you do keep him in your
0: basement. That's true. Which is odd, because you live in Texas, where most people don't have basements.
1: Oh, wait, you're right. This isn't really so much a fan love letter as a pleading for release. Yes. Okay.
0: He's down there with the interns.
1: You know, it's funny, I there 's obviously so many this isn 't the same thing as saying who do you, who are some of your favorite actors because I mean you could list lots of people like Robert de Niro, what have you who have lots of movies I would never ever watch yeah um that 's true, but the, you know to say who is somebody that, like despite all of that you don 't care you 'll watch it if they 're in it uh, is a more select group, and it has a lot to do with getting nerdy about fandom, and for me, that really direct directly translates to people whose original product I love so much. To some degree, they're always that, no matter what in my head, no matter what else they're in. And William Shatner comes immediately (laughs) to mind. The horrible shit I have watched with William Shatner in it. Yeah, I was going to say, that's commitment, man. I mean, I have watched some truly bad movies only because William Shatner was in them. I mean... For like the newer version of that is Nathan Fillion. I love him so much. I he's not in as much, thankfully, so I don't have to sit through as many terrible things. But uh, I But he watch, is going to
0: be in the Kingdom of the Spiders remake, so that's pretty awesome. Uh,
1: wouldn't that be hysterical? Yes, it unless. would. Uh, and, and the only other answer answers there for me are uh, Woody Allen, who I'm just a, I you know say what you will about the controversy, which I'm not sold on. I think he's one of the greatest. Uh, Writer creators in Hollywood history. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll watch anything with them, and then Scarlett Johansson because if I need to explain that, I, don't, <laughs> I really don't think I need to explain that.
0: That's no, you don't, and please don't because that couch is not Scotch guarded.
1: Um, <laughs> it is actually entirely oh, thank because God. of Scarlett Johansson.
0: Thank God. Uh, for me, the the answers are people like Robert Forrester, who is one of my favorite actors. But you're right, this is like a special subset of favorite actors where. Um, you know, I've seen Robert Forrester in some bad movies, but I will watch, if I know he's in a movie, I will watch it uh, every single time. And another, another one of those actors who actually, for my money, has not been in a lot of bad movies or was not in a lot of bad movies is Warren Oates. Warren Oates is one of those actors that uh, you may not know by name, but every time you see him in a movie, especially in the 70s, you recognize him immediately. He is one of those guys that, you know, we talk about actors that epitomize certain decades. Warren Oates is the 70s. And if you're thinking about the great movies of the 70s, and especially, like, the Vanguard stuff, things like um, Tulane Blacktop and and The Wild Bunch and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and Race with the Devil. And, like, I mean, across the spectrum of, like, really great artistic genre film and even, like, some of the smaller exploitation things, Warren Oates is always there. Because Warren Oates defines the 70s. And I, I will watch anything that has his name on it. Uh, and And somebody who's coming up who's, well, just kind of out of both fandom and personal affinity... Uh, is A.J. Bowen, but A.J. luckily has made very few bad films, has has been in very few bad films. I think you have to go back to, like, Creepshow 3 to find a, a really bad movie that A.J.'s in, and he
1: loves it when we bring that up. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a Creepshow 3. I probably shouldn't
0: have said anything, because now I'm going to get angry angry emails. Is
1: there really a Creepshow 3? Yep, and he's in it. Good lord.
0: I didn't just pluck that out of I mean, a hat. Creepshow
1: 2 wasn't that great to begin with. <laughs> the
0: raft segment was good. Yeah. The rest of it, eh. Creepshow 3 doesn't even have a raft segment.
1: Yeah. Mm, okay. I'm, I, I feel somehow like the world is a little bit dimmer now. <laughs> Just not as bright and beautiful. So.
0: But luckily, he's doing great stuff right now. So I will always, you know, going forward, uh, he's always somebody whose projects I will watch. Our second question comes from Bradley Martin, whose name is decidedly easier to pronounce. And he says, can you make a, quote, good, bad movie on purpose? This is a really good question.
1: Well, the answer is a very strongly tentative yes. Yes, you can and there have been several examples of people making very good bad movies most recently we had Big Ass Spider which is a very fun intentionally B film mm-hmm. uh, Lake Placid which is getting a Blu-ray release soon is one of those that like yeah they were going for high camp they were going for silly even going all the way back to the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a great example of that certainly but I think that more often than not the best B movies are still going to be those ones that happened happy accidents mm-hmm. <laughs> as terrible movies uh, and there's a lot of intentionally terrible bad movies
0: yeah and i think good is the operative word here because this is a, this is the kind of thing we talk about on junk food cinema a lot over at film school rejects every tuesday uh, is is the idea of kind of ironic film appreciation how that can lead to ironic film production and i think op- the operative word here is good you can't Make a bad movie just to make a bad. You can't just go into a movie thing. We're going to make a bad film, and that's why people are going to like it. It's yeah. like no, 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 no. You actually have to put some thought and some quality behind it. Uh, you want if you want to ape sort of the tropes of B cinema. If you want to go for the uh, like the stylistic choices, maybe the actors, maybe the spirit of it. Fine, but you still have to produce something that's worthwhile. You still have to focus on your script. You still have to focus on you know the elements that are going to shine through. You can't just be lazy about it. You can't just throw things against the wall because, like, this is what a bad movie would do. It's like, no, you're just talentless.
1: Yeah. There's a I, difference. I, I say the, like, the best example of that for me, and I still bothers me that people like it so much, is Birdemic, one of those movies that was just the trashiest, laziest, look, we're making a bad movie on purpose, ha ha. I'm like, this is unwatchable garbage. It's not funny. There's a billion people beforehand who have done this sort of thing so much better with actual attempt to make a watchable film inside of it. Yeah. That's just saying, let's do everything as cheap and as trashy and terrible as we possibly can, and then act as if we're serious about it.
0: Yeah, whereas the other end of that spectrum, for me, will always be Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino's a guy that makes B-movies. He really does. He he basically piecemeals a B-movie from other B-movies, yeah. but he approaches it with artistic sensibilities because he's not a lazy filmmaker. So, you know, again, say what you want about his films, but he is not a lazy filmmaker by any stretch of the imagination, and I think that's why he's been the paramount and, and the, the the paradigm of creating something out of that kind of B movie passion into something that's you know nominated and winning Oscars like that still kind of baffles me a little bit it's like this is a guy who is literally taking his favorite schlock and piecing it together into his very his his own voice and his own interpretation his own product and yet it's it's a, it's all tour like he's he's like working in two different dimensions at once fair enough so that's my answer to that question, guys. Thank you so much for sending those in. We're going to slam the lid shut on the letterbox for another week. ka chunk. That's apparently the sound it makes. That's the sound
1: effect good because I wasn't going to go in and out. Hucker chunk. Haka
0: chunk. Sounds like a transformer falling down the stairs. Right. <laughs> which is actually how I used to describe dubstep to people. Sounds like a transformer falling down the stairs. Anyway, we're going to dive into Dara reviews. And reminding you once again that everything we talk about will have a little link here on the page at one of us. ...for uh, Amazon, so if you click on that image, it'll take you directly to Amazon. If you buy that item, or if you buy anything there, as long as you've got to Amazon via our link, that benefits the site. We really do
1: appreciate it. And we're going to start this week with Veronica Moss! Hooray! Veronica Moss! Well, you know the thing about Veronica Mars that makes it important in the terms of like uh, film history is that it's really the first film funded entirely on Kickstarter. I mean, this is a film where they knew that even if they got it made, got the money for it, it was never going to make a ton of money. It was the film evolving out of a niche television show that had a dedicated fan base, but you know, experience has shown these things don't tend to make a huge amount. So what do you do about that? What studio is willing to take that chance? Well, the creator, uh, Austin's own Rob Thomas, built this Kickstarter along with uh, star Kristen Bell and said, let's see what happens if we do a Kickstarter, because basically the studio said if we make over $2 million, they'll kick in some money as well to make it. Well, the Kickstarter ended up making over $2 million in two days, and by the end of it made almost $6 million, which was ended up being pretty much outside of advertising money that the studio spent was the budget for the film. Of course it didn't make that back, but at the same time, you can't judge it based on that level either because it's everything the studio put in was paid for and it made a little money on top of it. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, was it a success? Sure. Just not a wild one, but for the fans, it was a gigantic success. And what they ended up making was a movie that was what, you know, you get what you pay for. They made a movie for the fans. (laughs) I feel like this is the type of thing you can enjoy outside of that, but generally speaking, this is for people who already know they love Veronica Mars and gives you everything you wanted to see out of a Veronica Mars film. I mean, it really, rather than the kind of weak third season, harkens back to the first two seasons where it's her and her back in her town, uh, uh, you know, going back there, getting sucked into the world of all the people she knew there and not all the lame college friends, and have you know being have been forced to be a private eye again even though in here she's trying to get a job as a lawyer with an appearance by jamie lee curtis as the head of the company who keeps calling her going hey aren't you supposed to be here but when she goes back she finds out her ex-boyfriend uh who everyone is everyone who watches veronica mars is a shipper for uh logan eccles played by jason Doring, that he's in trouble with the law because it looks like there's a lot of evidence suggesting he murdered his celebrity girlfriend He's Whoops. like super rich dude back in the town. Well, she knows he's kind of a juvenile delinquent, but he's not a murderer. So she's determined to help him, despite the fact that her current boyfriend is a little like, "Why are you hanging out with that guy again? Uh, And no one really believes he's not guilty because basically not a lot of people really like him he is kind of a he's the bad boy of the show that you always root for her to get back together with the rory if you will (laughs) and this ends up being a lot of fun they bring almost they bring almost everybody who's still alive on the show back pretty much at least for a minute or two and and like i said in the context of being a a fan it's really fun they got the writers back from some of the most popular episodes it's very uh just downright hysterical dialogue at points. Uh, lots of Easter eggs, like tons of Easter eggs. And a lot of the Easter eggs in here are stuff that are like references to things. Only fans know, like at one point they reference that she was originally at one point going to be like a member of the FBI. And there's a joke directly about that. And you would only know that if you'd been following the development of this film in the first place. I had a great time with this. It's not one of those things I can recommend outside of being a huge Veronica Mars fan. Even the Blu-ray extras are dedicated entirely to the fans, which is, you know, why wouldn't they be? Um, the The bulk of it is a 56-minute making of Veronica Mars thing that's really not about the making of Veronica Mars. They're not even called
0: extra features. They're called incentives. Why is that?
1: Right. (laughs) Uh, basically is just about the fans. It's about they were filming several of the actors on the day of the Kickstarter, and they have that footage in there, and then they follow it all the way through the making and the production of after uh, and the advertising for it with all the special events they did for the fans, all the meet and greets. As well as another 19 minutes of short features called More Onset Fun, which is basically more stuff with the fans, pre-planned things of them joking out. There's about four minutes of deleted scenes, five minutes of a gag reel uh, that are both just kind of okay. But I think this is worth owning for the – just seeing how much these guys really love doing this and, like, how everybody is, like – just call me. I'll be back to do another one. I mean, even Kristen Bell said repeatedly, it's like, look, I wanted to go and do other stuff, but the whole t- I constantly feel this role calling to me to come back because this is the only role I've ever been in that I just feel like completely comfortable and at ease doing. And mm-hmm. I would I would do this till I die.
0: <laughs> nice. I yeah. realized earlier, this is how little I watch TV and how much I need to watch more TV is that. I said the Rory, if you will. I meant the Dean, which was a Gilmore Girls reference. Oh, Jesus. and I even I even used the wrong name of the character. So,
1: <laughs> go me! Well, you know, that's just as geeky to be a Gilmore Girls fan as it is Veronica Marks I fans, like the so. dialogue. Shoot me. I don't know. A lot of people... I've never seen it. A lot of people tell me it's really good.
0: I haven't watched it in years, but I used to watch it uh, with my wife, and
1: I thought, oh, man, here's a show I'm going to have to suffer through for her but it's like no i really like the dialogue joss whedon has has publicly stated he was a big fan of both this show and that show so
0: boom that. that's right everybody <laughs> suck it me and joss are gonna that, go hang out if
1: that means anything at all it, it, sure it, you it know
0: what i feel a little bit better so thank you Fair we're
1: gonna move on from there to the
0: art of the steel speaking of uh actors who all watch anything that they're in Kurt
1: Russell! Yeah, it's one of these things, like, uh, there's been some criticism about this film because they say, look, it's a heist film. It doesn't really stretch outside the boundaries of your average heist film. It doesn't really have a lot of surprises. I mean, I agree that it's kind of a, like, play-it-by-numbers heist movie in a lot of ways, but it's a play by numbers heist film that's still done very slickly and is well-filmed and well-written with Kurt fucking Russell as the lead character. Yeah. That's like a no dah to go watch if I've ever heard of anything. Yeah, it's not a bad
0: film. It just doesn't have a, a lot of ambition. Like, it's not trying to break new ground. It is a very standard heist film. Like, you can almost track the beats a little bit, but it really doesn't matter when you have characters like these that are so enjoyable to watch. And like you said, it is very slick. It is very well shot. It is... Very well structured.
1: Yeah. You've got uh, Kurt Russell as Crunch Calhoun, who is <laughs> a stunt motorcycle uh, driver. Who I
0: love that. That's just, it sounds like he's going to like be one of the uh, ghost writers or something, know, that name. But,
1: uh, he's you know, kind of a schmuck in some ways at this point in his life because he had did a long stretch in a Polish jail when his own brother, uh, Nicky Calhoun, played by Matt Dillon... After a heist and he was grabbed by the police, basically turned him in for the reasoning he's already been tapped before. So if he goes to jail, it's going to be for like 20 years. But if Kurt Russell's character gets tapped, it'd only be like five. So he's like, yeah, sure. It was him. (laughs) Uh, So Kurt Russell out of jail is like, fuck this. I'm not getting involved in this stuff anymore. And I want nothing to do with my brother. But guess what? There's another heist that comes along that's just just too hard to pass up and when you get the whole gang back together it's really hard not to say fuck it let's go after it one last time and see if you can if, if Kurt Russell and Matt Dillon can keep from killing each other during this whole thing great additional roles here Jay Baruchel poor guys uh, he is such a really good actor but he's got such a distinctive physical type he's always so limited by it I, I don't uh, I don't I don't know uh, what you're what you're talking about he's the, the uh, uh, what's the word like the not assistant, but a uh, apprentice apprentice no. yeah. to uh well, that's what he calls it, apprentice to, to Kurt Russell's character here. sort of his first big crime. Terrence stamp has a cool role in here as an old school crime guy. Um, a lot of familiar faces throughout this thing. And like I said, really funny dialogue at points, good editing. I, I enjoyed this much more than I didn't. I feel if anything didn't work for me at all. It's that, it's really hard to buy Matt Dillon and Kurt Russell as brothers. <laughs>
0: yeah, but they don't look anything alike. Anything, the the age dis- disparity, yeah.
1: No attempt to try and give them similar physicality or ticks <laughs> or anything. You're like, I'm yeah, really, they, let's just, they have to be adopted. I'm just going to assume they're adopted.
0: Yeah, but I mean, this is one of those things, people. Like, Kurt Russell doesn't really do this kind of thing anymore. He doesn't really act. Like, I remember uh, when I wrote, I can't remember what website it was for, but I wrote this article, it was like, MIA on Kurt Russell because he'd been he'd been out of the game for so long like oh, yeah. he really just wasn't doing it anymore. So any opportunity that I get to see Kurt Russell in a new movie like and that may just be that I am hopelessly devoted to Snake Plissken, <laughs> but but again like I just think that this is a movie where he's his effortless charm really carries the character and carries the movie. It's a uh, they've got little fun uh, interludes where they explain different historical heists and yeah, it's
1: just it's a lot of fun. And of course, ultimately, like most heist movies, it's also a con film. I, I, I think the problem a lot of people had with this is when it finally puts everything together for you, it's a bit of a stretch <laughs> to say sure. how plausible that is, but it's a, it's a fun one. If they make it fun enough, then you're willing to go along for it. And I, for me, I totally was.
0: People's exhibit A in that argument would be Now You See Me, where you get to yeah. the end and you're like, there's no fucking way they pulled it off like that, yeah. but you don't really care. Yeah, because it
1: was so much fun getting
0: it Yeah, that. because yeah. you see uh, James Franco's little brother, like, fight some guy and do parkour. You don't even care what the heist is about that, anymore. That
1: is true. You yeah, have magician parkour. <laughs> magician parkour! <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love parkour. Yeah, what were we the, talking about? The uh, art of the steel. The art of yeah. steel. It's yeah. got a
1: couple extras. Is the making of the theft of the Mona Lisa, which is a cool little flashback sequence uh, that that's involved in here. That has the actors from the movie playing other roles in a sort of sepia-toned, old-timey-looking thing. Uh, there's a doing-the-crime-making of the artist deal, about 30 minutes long, with cast and crew looking at it, and then an audio commentary from the writer and director. So all together, a solid little package for what I feel was kind of a criminally, if you will, mm. overlooked little heist film.
0: <laughs> criminally overlooked. Mm. No, I agree. I just think it's funny that you said that. Yes, I know. Uh, we're going to move on from there to the deep end. We're going into the deep end. I'm just going to throw people right into the deep end. Can I Chris? get those
1: little floaties around my arms?
0: I've told you I will not go to the pool with you anymore if you continue to wear those. You but are you. Are... I,
1: I could drown. It's not safe, Brian. <sighs> <laughs> this is actually a 2001 film that only now is getting a uh, Blu-ray release. In fact, this may be the first home release, period. I'm not even sure. But it was one of those films that was actually well-received at festivals, but never really made it much past the festival circuit. And now that we're seeing Tilda Swinton, who's sort of appearing in a lot more stuff all of a sudden, uh, having kind of a comeback, I guess they're like, hey, let's put out this old Tilda Swinton movie that she was so well regarded for. This is actually a adaptation of a novel, The Blank Wall, which has already been made before this as a movie called The Reckless Moment, which I have not seen. Nope. No uh, idea. But it's a, it's a pretty solid adaptation where uh, Swinton plays Margaret Hall, who is a a mother of a couple kids, upper middle class in in California. Her husband is in the Navy and he, we literally never see him in this movie. He's off on a ship somewhere. Uh, But she finds out that uh, her son, who's a high school senior is having a gay affair with the owner of a Reno Nevada nightclub owner played by Josh Lucas. And she's, this is not acceptable, not for the gay reason, but because this guy is, basically a chicken hawk. He's sleeping with a high school kid. She visits the nightclub to say, Hey, fucking stay away from my son. When she comes back home, her son's like, look, he told, call me, told me you came. She's like, yeah. Did he tell you that he offered me? He said, if I paid him $5,000, he'd break up with you. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> uh, Josh, Josh shows up. They get in a fight, with, gets in a fight with his son. The son says, you know what? Just fuck off. I can't believe you said that. I want nothing more to do with you. He's like, you're like, okay, this looks like an occasion where nothing happened. So where is this movie going? Well, on his way out, the drunken Josh Lucas stumbles, falls into the water. And the next morning is found dead by Tilda Swinton, who just assumes after realizing that her son, admitting that he had shown up and that there was a fight, just assumes that the son did it. And being the protective mother hen, she is going to do everything it takes to protect her son from murder, including hiding the body deeper in the lake. Of course, more problems erupt when the, the cops find the body almost immediately because Tilda Swinton is not exactly an expert body hider. <laughs> I'm watching the movie. I want to scream at her. Are you serious? You're really putting the body in like four feet of water? Yes, that's going to hide for a long time. Uh, but when a guy from the mob shows up saying, look, this dude owed us $50,000 and we know that you guys must have killed him. Uh, cause he was found right outside your house and he was having an affair with your son. And we've got this videotape of him having sex with your son that proves it. So we're going to release this videotape to the cops into the press, unless you pay us this money. Once again, she wants to protect her son, right? So she's going to do whatever she can to try and get that money. It's an interesting little film, if not really a thriller per se, as much as it sounds, it's, it's really kind of almost more of a character piece at times about, uh, Tilda Swinton's character. But there's a really interesting connection that forms between her and the guy who's going out there trying to get the money as ultimately he kind of he starts feeling real sympathy for her and her situation. He doesn't want to be doing this, but, you know, he's not in a position to question either. And there's this weird chemistry that develops that actually is the high point of this film. I don't think I liked it quite as much as some critics did at the time. Once again, it's a little overlong, uh, but it's certainly an interesting premise. And uh, I think Tilda Swinton, uh, you know, milks it for all it's worth as an actress. Right. Yeah. I'll have to check this out. Yeah. Decent movie. Not a, not a, like one of those can't miss ones, but if you're a Tilda Swinton fan and you should be, cause she's a wonderful actress. This is an early, earlier film from her that I think a lot of us missed along the way. Fair enough. Moving on from there, we're going to talk about Mr. Jones. This is actually, and this I mean, is going to be controversial, but this is actually my pick of the week. Really? Yeah. I, a lot of people hated the fuck out of this 2013 horror film. Not me. I am given this my pick of the week because it was, this is one of those ones that was like, falls under pleasant surprises.
0: <laughs> it was, it was definitely a pleasant surprise. This is a, a uh, this is a horror film that, maybe I'm wrong about this, but seems like it has the same budget as something like Resolution. Like it's it's Very a super small. low budget movie um i hesitate to call it a found footage movie it's more like a like a faux documentary what's well,
1: weird because it's yeah it's, and it
0: switches back and forth it's, so it's it's
1: not a found footage film it starts feeling like one it moves to like like what feels like a completed documentary and then ends up being sort of a commentary or not even a commentary it's not meta it's <laughs> not a commentary it's more of a sort of deconstruction of found footage in a way uh, that as the character's own identity and his feelings about this own film that he's making sort of all combine in a nightmarish, is it inside his head? Is it really happening or isn't it type sequence for the third act?
0: Yeah. And you know, it's funny. Like I, I gotta say, I didn't, I didn't dislike this movie at all. I disliked where it ended up because I felt like, not that it was unjustified, not that they hadn't you know laid the groundwork, and not that it was necessarily a bad ending, I just thought the more interesting option for the story was the one they started with hmm. um, so for me the, the I, I, man it 's really hard to talk about without spoiling, but basically the the premise of this movie is that you have these two people who are going out into the woods to shoot a documentary, what they 're really trying to do is save their relationship, and he's uh, the, the the boyfriend is a filmmaker, so he 's kind of going out there to make a nature documentary. And weird things keep happening, and then they discover this, like, smaller cabin not too far from them, and the person who appears to live there is this sort of reclusive artist myth-type character. It's yeah. Sort of like a Banksy, except, like, if Banksy was terrifying and weird. Um,
1: Almost an urban legend Yeah, of artists.
0: Yeah. People are like, you know, we get these scarecrows from this artist we just know as Mr. Jones, and... You know, some people don't think he really exists, and other people who have gotten these scarecrows, weird things have happened to. So, you know, it's it's about them, st- like, okay, well, let's make a documentary about him. And so it, it kind of starts off on that premise, and then things kind of get to a, a weird sort of nightmarish or dream logic state, which I got to say, for the first 40, 45 minutes of this movie, I was really freaked out. Like, it it is really effective in the way that it kind of, Pushes the scares through and, and puts you in the, in the shoes of these people who are just in the middle of the woods with, is he malevolent? Is he benevolent? Like we don't like this creepy ass dude who lives in this cabin and makes these freaky scarecrows. Um, and, and I really liked a lot of the DreamLogic stuff. It's just that by the end, I thought there was a stronger story in, in the one that they set up. Versus the, the place that it went. That would be my only criticism. But yeah, overall, I, I thought it was pretty cool.
1: What's funny is like, that's the same thing a lot of critics said. And that was the biggest place I differed because I loved where it ended up going. I, but that's, I think also a difference in between the two of us and the type of horror movies we prefer. Whereas I love sort of nightmare dream logic type movies a lot. And I love movies that are very twisty and turny and, and flip everything over on you in horror. And I like the fact that this did in fact do just that. I loved, I loved watching how they managed to make realistically nightmarish stuff without having to resort to CG or anything, doing it with almost no budget yeah. and and being very very creative and spooky about it.
0: Yeah, and I mean not to be pigeonholed, I like those movies too. but no, no, I just, no, but I, just I, mean, I just
1: think that in terms of favorites, well, that's I just my I, I think it,
0: I really do think it was just a, uh, the the fact that I thought they presented a stronger case for a different type of movie, and then when it shifted, it's like okay, there is also that type of movie you could make, and that's. That's an interesting choice, but I was just by that point so hooked and more interested in the story that they started doing that I wanted to follow that one more. Like when that, basically, when you had your Robert Frost moment where the, the two roads diverged in the yellow wood, I wanted to keep going down the one we were already on, and I wasn't as impressed with the uh, the left turn. Well,
1: I'm a road less traveled guy, so fuck you. There you go. There you, go. Buddy. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Like I said, we're going to have to agree to disagree because I, I like where I. I liked the movie more as it moved into each new act and kept making unexpected choices and different choices because I thought the initial premise were like, great, it's another Killer in the Woods film. I'm not impressed with found footage as it moved on and became so much more. And then even more, that's why I liked it as much as I did. So I I really enjoyed the fuck out of this. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea one way, as has already been proven by how the critics responded. Although both, uh, Twitch and bloody disgusting gave it exceedingly high marks. Uh, you know the horror sites. <laughs> are you are you the Metacritic now? What does well, that matter? I'm just, I thought it was notable that they were really two of the only uh, like critics out there who really pointedly said this is great. Fuck at what everybody else says.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, and I've I've been kind of that same way. Like that's why I've never really cared. Like there have been some movies that that everybody has loved that I just I wish I could see what everybody else is seeing. But I don't know. Like I I don't put a lot of credence into like these sites say this and these say this. So I think uh, my score is probably here.
1: Well, no, I mean, of course not. You've got to take every movie and just respond to it on your own thing. Although, of course... I get great pleasure out of reading other people's reviews after I have like mixed feelings or very strong feelings one way or the other about a film because it helps me sort out my own thoughts about it as well mm-hmm. by hearing other people's analysis. God knows that's why we have a job at all, Brian, because other, other people feel that way as well. Shenanigans. <laughs> uh, no extra features on here as at all, but I really think this is a movie that you should give a shot to. Yeah, and, definitely. And, and try it out. I found it absolutely chilling at points
0: support indie horror
1: at at all costs really Mm -hmm. yeah so from or someone in your woods in a mask will come up and and be standing outside your window this evening
0: yep that's the rules man we didn't make them up just now at all it's
1: true (laughs) it won't be us under the mask i'm just saying we're not that motivated
0: no we really aren't moving on from there we're gonna talk about separate but equal which i imagine is probably not Politically based at all.
1: <laughs> this is actually uh, a very famous 1991 TV movie that's about uh, the the famous Supreme Court desegregation court case, Brown versus Board of Education, which is where the phrase separate, separate from equal was made yeah. very famous uh, with Sidney Poitier, who's one of the greatest actors who has ever lived, yep. giving a just incredible performance as the lead attorney for the NAACP. Thurgood Marshall. Now, you might, you guys might remember a while back I talked about the movie Thurgood uh, that had Lawrence Fishburne was a d- doing an onstage performance. A one-man show. Absolutely amazing. One of the best one-man shows I've ever seen, ever. So good. So I was super excited to watch this, despite its three hours and 12-minute running time. Uh, and this is the type of film that you show a classroom in some ways. It's an extremely educational film. But a very well done and very well acted detailing this case step by step. And I think the most remarkable thing about this film is you actually, rather than just building a sort of, ooh, the South, ooh, ooh the racist, is <laughs> actually trying to un- say, show you what their entire case was and what their viewpoint was and how they were arguing that, you know, These people – some people were not racists Were arguing we genuinely feel that a lot of the – you know, a lot of these kids in the South are racists and anarchy and chaos is going to erupt in high school classes if you try and mix black people in with white people. They were genuinely upset that it was going to lead to like all sorts of horrible things happening and it's that much more fascinating of a film for that because they – at that time – that was a point that was worth making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there was real fear. I mean, the Klan was still wa- waltzing about the country, doing as they will. I'm young enough to remember when there were still like news reports about the Klan were still neutral. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, did I say young enough or old enough? I'm old enough to remember.
0: Yeah, you're, yeah. you're, yeah, the other thing.
1: <laughs> you know, you could call it young enough.
0: You could. I'm you, young at heart. You would be erroneous, but yeah,
1: this was actually Burt Lancaster's last role, playing oh, wow. John W. Davis, who was the, uh, the the lawyer at the Supreme Court hearing uh, against turning over "Separate but Equal." And it's a heck of a role and they give him a lot of depth and balance. It is three hours and 12 minutes. It's hard not to, but you'd, you'd hope so. But like I said, it's a little dry. It really is about the case. They're not trying to make this – it's not very Hollywoodized at all, all things considered. Uh And and in terms of trying to really understand what was going on at that point in our country, this is essential watching. But in terms of being more entertaining, I'd say watch Thurgood. <laughs> <laughs> as
0: entertaining as a movie about uh separate but equal you know try i mean th- it historically it's important to understand the the facts of this case and to understand but it's like entertaining is probably not a word you're ever going to use when you're dealing with pot boiler just very viscerally upsetting you know different different uh what do you call them different mores of of politics in the sixties like there's, there's never going to be a time when it's like, you know what I really want to watch is a movie about when America was just fucking racist as can be, and yeah.
1: But yeah, as entertaining as that can be. Yeah, I'm going to watch the, the remix of 12 Years a Slave that's all set to the tunes of Hall and Oates. Exactly, it's like 12 <laughs> Years a
0: Slave, great film, important film. Not one you're going to watch. Like, man, I'm in a great mood. Let's watch
1: Twelve Years a Slave. That being said, that's an example of a film that has a lot more craft to it in terms of the art overall. Right. And Separate but Equal is more direct and to the point. Like, look, we're just we're here to tell you what happened and try and make it uh, try and make these people seem real and bring to life this period without making it feel that much. You know, without making it feel Hollywoody, without giving it that sense of there being a craft around it. We're just going. Here's what happened.
0: Yeah. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about something else that really totally happened.
1: Son of Batman! Oh, that is real. That happened in real life. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, saying I am Batman. I'm just saying no one's ever seen us in the same room together.
0: <laughs> wow. So Fox News logic. Got it.
1: <laughs> right? But, On it, but nonetheless, makes you think, doesn't it, Brian? <laughs> I'm just asking questions. <laughs> God damn it! I hate that I had to steal that from a T-shirt. That's really lame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the latest direct-to-video animated superhero film as part of the DC Animated Universe original movies. It's an adaptation of Grant Crazy Ass Grant Morrison and Andy Kubert, who is not as crazy. A Batman and Son storyline from 2006, which is to say, it does in fact predate the recent New Fifty. And DC's announcement, all their new films would take place within that universe. But it's very different from the actual original book. There's a lot of major changes and it is definitely developed so as to fit within the new 52 universe in the comics. Hmm. Uh, I know that's upsetting a lot of people, but I found that most of the changes here are not hurting it in any way i like this considerably better than the last one we reviewed i really liked this yeah i actually thought it was pretty good that's teleplay is by our own beloved joe r lansdale oh really yeah oh right on um i did not know that. i thought this was a lot of fun um the idea here of course is that it's about ultimately the league of assassins raza ghul is grooming his grandson, Damian Wayne. Who uh Batman doesn't know he's got a son, but basically one of the times Talia, his daughter, Ra's Al Ghul's daughter, slept with it, Batman, she, you know, maybe did she, she got knocked maybe up. Maybe she wasn't taking the pill that week. Maybe it was on purpose. Maybe it wasn't. Either way, they've got an heir to carry on the Al Ghul. Yeah, one. she joined
0: the new. She didn't join the Nuva Ring of Assassins.
1: But. uh Basically, Deathstroke, who was set up at one point to be the leader of uh, Guild of Assassins, and then was overturned when Damian Wayne popped out, as is not taking this well and attacks the League of Assassins, kills Ra's, Ra's al Ghul where he can't get to his uh, rejuvenation pool in time. The Lazarus Pit. And uh, Talia, in you know realizing she has a lot of work to do, comes to Gotham, drops off Damian with Batman, says, "Hey, by the way, this is your son." Uh, You need to take care of him for a while. See you later. (laughs) Here's your kid. Enjoy it. So instead of a a cute and quirky comedy like that probably would have happened if Arnold Schwarzenegger was in it, and this was a movie in the 80s, this is is still another very dark Batman film.
0: It's funny. It could be like My Two Dads because he has Bruce Wayne and Batman, so it's kind of like that. So My Two Dads, who himself doesn't have a dad and cries about it a lot.
1: Well, yes, it could. Uh, of course, ultimately, still ends up. he still ends up fighting uh, Deathstroke as the main villain in here. Uh, but the real entertainment here is the finding that that point where Bruce Wayne is convincing Damien that, you know, the way of the League of Assassins and killing is wrong. And the way of not doing that and the way of the bat is the way to go. Which and, is
0: unfortunate because you know what
1: I really loved about this
0: is how badass this little kid was in the beginning uh, of the film. There's
1: a point where he just... Beats to hospital severe hospitalization. This grown man who's ten times his size. Yeah, and you're like, and almost beats the shit out of Nightwing at one point. Nightwings <laughs> just cut all the shit. <laughs> it's like calling like, Batman. Like, I got this kid here who says he's yours. I like the, the kid says something snarky to him about some time. It's like yes, in my styles, my. I, I'm still very, so experienced, uh, you know, what are you going to do about it? He's like, I beat you, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Shut
0: up! <laughs> no, my favorite part is he's fighting this this giant henchman, and the henchman's like, you didn't think it was going to be that easy, did you? And he's like, I don't like things easy. And this little kid throws his sword down and is just like, come at me. And I'm like, okay, that's fucking awesome. Well, this kid is badass. The,
1: you know, in this new version of things, he's the one who basically gives... Deathstroke, his his one eye, you know, you're like Deathstroke. He's like one of the master assassins in the world. This little kid fucking puts his eye out. Deathstroke's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing.
0: Like it's so it's so good. Like it just so much of of the appeal, I think, of this animated movie is just how badass Damian Wayne is, and I like the kind of kind of trying to convince him to be the new Robin and how much shit he talks about the Robin uniform. It's oh, yeah. so funny.
1: Uh, it's kind of feminine, don't you think? <laughs> You're like, it is, Damien. It's hard to argue with that one. Uh, Jason O'Mara is voicing ba- uh, Bruce Wayne Batman in this one, and I think he actually does an excellent job with it. It's its going to be really
0: hard for me. It's going to take a while to get over the fact that it's not Kevin Conroy always voicing an animated Batman. Yeah. That's not, not a slight against O'Mara. It's just the whole time I was like, man... I miss Kevin Conroy.
1: Of course. Uh, uh, Marina Baccarin from Firefly is Talia Al Ghul. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito from Breaking Bad is Raz Al Ghul. Xander Berkeley is Dr. Kirk Langstrom. A lot of other familiar voices throughout this. Um, So... I, I, I don't think this is one of the best ones ever. I still think like for Batman ones, Under the Red Hood is probably the best they've done so far, but it's still really solid. This yeah. is a lot of fun and it made me, I always in the comics like Damien. He's a character I, I started reading prepared to despise. And I was like, oh, this is actually a pretty good character. And I thought they translated that pretty well in this.
0: Definitely. And there's not as much of an overt, uh, anime, I guess there's uh, yeah. influence on this and the way the characters are constructed. There's a little bit, but it's not so much as like some of the Marvel movies we've watched, where it's just like just make an anime. Then just release it in Japan. If, if all you want to do is make anime, then make anime. Yeah. Whereas yeah. this, it's like it's a very it's more of a, like a, a stark like a blend of like anime and stark deco style. And, and it it's, it's really cool. I like yeah, it
1: a lot. It works. Uh, and then, of course these DC ones usually come with really extra great extras and this is no exception. And uh, what I like best about these extras is they take these characters and they go, here's everything that actually happened to them in the comics. And here's what happened to them after the story in the comics. And you really get a bigger feel for the, how it, how it happened in the books. And there's one feature that, uh, is about the league of assassins in that way. And there's another specifically about Damian Wayne. Um and then there's a look at, you know, more of the animation type stuff in here. Four episodes from past animated series that relate to the the topic, and then a sneak peek at the next one coming up, Batman Assault on Arkham, that actually looks pretty fucking cool.
0: Yeah, especially since John Carpenter's directing it. Really? No. But oh. I just I want to see an assault on Precinct Thirteen with Batman. Is no. that so hard? Assault on GCPD 13? Come uh, on.
1: Yeah, I kind of want to see that too. Oh. Of course, in that case, the, you know, the criminals wouldn't last but five minutes because he's nope. Batman. Nope. They'd be like, so
0: they're just standing outside? Yeah. Hold on. Okay, they're gone. <laughs> <It's>
1: gone.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. End of movie.
1: <laughs> scene.
0: Batman just shows up and they all fuck this. We're out. <laughs> we were standing here being silent and still and creepy, but Batman, you win that game. You, we're out of here. You
1: didn't say there was going to be a Batman. <laughs>
0: Well, from Son of Batman, we're going to talk about Lewis Black. Old Yeller! I see what you did there. See what I did there? Uh, you know, uh, do you like Louis Black? I do, actually. You know, I, I, should, I should rephrase. I like him in small doses. I like him when, you know, I'm listening, I'm listening to a Pandora comedy station or, uh, yeah, and they're, like, cycling through and I hear his, some of his bits are really good. I find that an entire show, for me at least, can get to a point where I'm just like,
1: eh, this isn't so much funny as it is just you ranting. See, I agree with you although I enjoy an entire show with him in more terms of, like, I'm not laughing, but it is really interesting. And he, I feel more like I'm watching a a kind of funny TED Talk sometimes. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, I get comedian, that. Because yeah, uh, he does go after being more informative uh and talking about politics and things like that. And Old Yeller is no exception, although, of course, like a lot of comedians these days, they're really going to we're talking about their own families and family experiences. One of the things I've been not liked as much with recent Patton Oswald stuff is, like, we get it. You love your family. Can we talk about Lord of the Rings again, please? You're too happy. <laughs> um, but Old Yeller is, you know, I I don't know. The best thing to say about it is what you said. It's like he's at his best in those short, bite sized bits. Yeah. This is there's nothing wrong with this concert. It is definitely f- funny at points, uh, and it's inf- it's informational all the way throughout, and I, fully enjoyable. I just it's not something I'm going to go back and watch again anytime soon. Um. So that, that that's about it. That's I don't, about it. else to say about it? It's, it's, and it's scene. end scene. So
0: <laughs> we'll just move to the next thing. That's fine. Well, the next thing is the new Blu-ray
1: release of Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would do the 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 belch from Booger, but no human being can. No. Actually, there's a. I didn't know till he says it again on on the extras of this, but. Uh, On the Nerdist, when Curtis Armstrong, who played Booger, was on it, like, so what's the deal? Can you do that belch? He's like, nobody could. They literally searched the world trying to find (laughs) someone who could do a belch for more than a few seconds. And they couldn't. They couldn't find anyone. So the one they ended up using is the sound of a camel having an orgasm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that just made this movie very dark it and weird. It strangely for me. sounds a lot like someone belching. Oh, man.
1: Yeah, it kind of puts a whole new touch on this sex comedy. And Revenge of the Nerds really was a sex comedy. But, you know, th- all right, so here's the thing about this movie and watching it now. <laughs> Super you dated. You could not make this movie now. It would be like, there's like eight different. Anti defamation leagues who would rise up screaming like anti Asian defamation league, anti like misogyny, anti you know, you name it. Even nerds like like in wake of people actually, which I still think is kind of silly, getting upset at Big Bang Theory because they're like this isn't for nerds; it's against them. Relax. <laughs> but but it is. Fuck uh, Big Bang Theory. I'm not saying it's a good show. I'm just saying I think that's kind of silly to get upset about. That's all. we're we're, we're not actually genetically nerds we chose to be. No, 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 <laughs> that's
0: true, but I, I, I hate... And, and it's, it's almost the way that this... I don't know, like, there, there's an interesting There's an interesting side note in talking about the Big Bang Theory and Revenge of the Nerds because Revenge of the Nerds does that thing that Big Bang Theory does, which is paint in the broadest strokes possible what it means to be a nerd, but it goes so over the top with it, and there's so... Uh, like, a separation from reality with Revenge of the Nerds that it kind of feels okay, whereas Big Bang Theory really wants you to think that this takes place in the real world, and it's like, no, guys, you, you're you doing blackface for geeks. Like, you, <laughs> you, are, you are offensively poorly drawn. Well, and once again,
1: I have a hard time calling that offensive or even saying blackface for geeks. I but, stand by what I said. But... Uh, That being said, that show is not very funny. Revenge of the Nerds (laughs) is actually very funny and probably more. The most
0: offensive thing is how unfunny Big Bang Theory is.
1: is. is. Mainly Revenge of the Nerds it is. It's extremely broad and everybody in it is drawn broadly. It's like a great companion piece to a film like Animal House, except here the jocks and crazy people in Animal House are, in fact, the bad guys. Uh, And the nerds, the ones who are picked on, are the ones who have risen up and taken the power back for themselves. When this movie actually came out in 1984, uh, this was inspirational. (laughs) It really was. I know so many people who are like, I feel a rising sense of self-confidence and self-worth after seeing Revenge of the Nerds because it makes you rise out of it going, it doesn't matter what you're into or how much you don't fit into the mainstream or don't like sports or whatever it is. You be really good at what you love, you know, work at it. One of us, doesn't it? <laughs> Right? You're getting know, all Should I put inspirational music here?
0: I know. It sounded like you were just doing a pitch for the website right? just now. <laughs>
1: um, this is with Robert Carradine, uh, who, of course, one of the Carradine clan mm-hmm. who really did not want to be... In this movie, but wasn't getting a lot of roles at this point and was very disparaging over playing a nerd, was like very upset, even in some ways, to play a nerd. And Anthony Edwards from ER, of course, who was much less concerned. But and sin- also from the 80s. But oddly, his sense has had nothing to do with this. Like he has nothing to do with these bonus features. He never talks about this movie. Kind of he was I think he was only in this first sequel, and even then, not in a lot of it.
0: Do you think he still talks about gotcha? I love gotcha. <laughs> he should.
1: <laughs> The idea being these nerds all going off to college and, uh, they find that they're in a position where they're widely hated, and even the school, like the the school dean, is a nerd himself, is completely you know being picked on and and had his opinion forced into the ground by John, a skinny John Goodman.
0: <laughs> well, skinny for John Goodman. Skinny for John.
1: Skinny. <laughs> He's skinnier than I am right now, which is you know, uh, <laughs> you know, he looks jockey almost jockish, um, jockish, well, Yeah,
0: I don't know what I just said there. Sorry, brother.
1: Who, who is you know basically defending the jocks no matter what. These nerds, after they're kicked out of the freshman dorms, one of a series of like, come on, that would never happen because the Jacks burned down their own frat house. They find their own frat house, build it and start their own geek frat under the name Lambda Lambda Lambda, which was a series of also implausible things. They end up getting this because there's that they don't have a chapter on this campus. They end up getting this frat, which is primarily a black frat normally. And it makes for some very funny, if not a little raise your eyebrow in today's world jokes. But I don't know, man. This movie is still fucking funny to me.
0: It's got a special place in the canon of the 80s. It really does. And and you watch it now and it's dated for a number of reasons. Not just like visually and not just because of the aesthetics. But like the way it actually depicts a nerd is, is very much a, a cartoon. It's It's a cartoon interpretation of what a nerd is. And not only that, but it's like... They really do like the and very much like our website. Like their membership into nerddom is apparently like not exclusive at all because it's no. like how is Curtis Armstrong a nerd? He's an idiot. He's not good at school. He, he's just gross.
1: He's it's a, like how how are you a nerd? I don't understand this. Yeah. Well, there's always you got to have that character in in any given college movie. There's the guy who's the stone, the Bluto you got to have the the Bluto. Bluto. Yeah. Yeah. And even in here, the jocks have their own Bluto, who's like the evil Bluto. Ogre. Who, in the second movie, I believe, ends up becoming a nerd as well. Yes. Yeah. That
0: second movie is... Dog shit! I don't know how anyone could sit through it. It has one
1: really, really, really funny scene in it, though, where all the jocks are plotting in a hot tub. And at the beginning of the scene, Ogre gets out of the hot tub to go pee in the background, and you hear him, and you realize this scene's been going on for five minutes, and he has not stopped peeing (laughs) this entire scene. And then the very end of it, he finally stops and comes back and goes, "Nerds!" And the only reason that's funny is because you that point where you realize he's been pissing for five minutes yep that's the best joke (laughs) in the the second revenge of the the nerds movie movie. so there was no reason to bundle the second or third or fourth movie with this one this is the one to see and it still holds up as much as it is like you said incredibly broad humor uh, a lot of humor about broads (laughs) hi oh, careful with that joke it's an antique there there's a sequence in here that in today's terms, is pretty much rape, but yeah. uh, but in the, and the in the context of the film, it they try and make it quaint and adorable. And again, st- very
0: dated movie, and
1: they still somehow sell it. Yeah,
0: it's again like there's so much like like Chris said, you couldn't remake this movie today. That being said, uh, Fox who released this did a great job at like they could have just put this out on Blu-ray and people would have been happy, but they loaded it up with some pretty interesting. Uh, supplements, including the pilot to the failed TV show from the yeah. early 90s. Which I did not get around to watching, but I, I can't imagine it's great. No, it's not. It's terrible. But the, <laughs> the fact that they added that to the Blu ray right. is actually pretty impressive. And there's a new commentary with, uh, oh. Robert Carradine, Curtis Armstrong, and Timothy Busfield, that's really yeah. funny. Like, like an
1: almost 40 minute, uh, making up feature with lots of, of good interviews and getting to see everyone older. Man, the biggest thing for me was that I didn't realize the guy Point, who played Point Dexter, that I had seen him in like a ton of other stuff. Yeah, he's mostly so, Sorkin stuff. He's, he's one of those you're like, that guy looks so distinctive I would not miss him in anything but they really nerded him up for there because yeah I, he was like Danny in the West Wing and, and he was on Studio roles.
0: 60 he was great and then he was in Field of Dreams yeah, for God's sake yeah he was Count
1: Costner's brother in there I was like holy shit that's Dexter. When Um, did
0: all these nerds get here?
1: Eight eight and a half minutes almost of, or a little over eight and a half minutes of deleted scenes that are deleted for a reason. (laughs) You watch the, a lot of times these deleted scenes are like, oh man, that's a shame. They should have made a director's cut and put that back in here. Not with these. we're fine with these These are all very awkward cuts, but it's fun to see them, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a solid package. And it's, I, I think despite its datedness, it still holds up as being a very funny film. If you walk into it prepared to let your urge to be offended by something. Go down.
0: Hey, fuck you. No, you're right.
1: (laughs) Yes. Actually, you know
0: what? For shits and also giggles, my pick of the week.
1: There you go.
0: Revenge of the Nerds. Anywho, moving on from there, we're going to talk about another 80s movie experiencing a re-release on
1: Blu-ray, and that is Weekend at Bernie's. Okay. Talk about your movies that are dated that don't. (laughs) work as well anymore. We nope. have to talk about Weekend at Birdies. Like you can see why despite getting average to lesser reviews when this 1989 comedy came out, you can see why it got a cult following. Uh, the idea being that Andrew McCarthy, the one of the Brat Pack along with Al- Brat Pack along with She, who just disappeared pretty much these days, uh, and Jonathan Silverman, they're insurance corporation employees who find out that there's a lot of money that's gone missing. And so they go to their boss, Bernie, to say, look, we found all this money. He's like, you guys, you kids are amazing. I want you to come out to my weekend house uh, and you know spend the weekend with me and we'll talk about it. You guys are your heroes of the company. And of course you go, something's wrong here. Well, yeah, Bernie ripped that money off himself and is trying to get his mob ties to murder these boys. The only thing is, the mob's like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to murder these kids. We had nothing to do with that money being stolen. Seems to me a lot easier just to murder Bernie, who's like a loose cannon if there ever was one, and just get out of here. Well, the boys get out there post the murder of Bernie and realize this is fucking paradise. There's gorgeous woman all over the goddamn place. I I don't want to leave this and decide to pretend that Bernie is still alive (laughs) for the weekend so they can hang out and party. The director of First
0: Blood... One of the seminal movies, not only of the 80s, but of the action genre, directs Weekend at Bernie's.
1: Yeah. And that baffles
0: me. I, I, I got How no explanation. How does that happen? How many bad movies do you have to make
1: before you're going from First Blood to Weekend at Bernie's? And let's not forget North Dallas 40. But, there you um, go. And Uncommon Valor. I don't know. Weekend at Bernie's, it's not, it's not even terrible. You can see what the appeal is. I remember liking this movie when it came out originally. It's just, it's just kind of at this point, a footnote of the eighties and comedies. Really? It's one joke. This movie is one joke, repeated ad nauseum. It's one joke that have a few moments in it that, that genuinely work. And there's not, I guess what makes this not a terrible movie is that there's no point where they do a joke and you're like, that was so fucking awful. This movie has just become, you know what I mean? Like a comedy gets bad by having jokes that are just bad. They find ways, new things to do in a very threes Company sort of way with this one joke that are kind of funny to watch.
0: Yeah, it's just I so can't. scattershot. It's like they literally
1: throw Bernie against the wall until he sticks. I mean, the be- <laughs> nice. I mean, the best point is when they, they've got him on a motorboat and they realize that he's fallen out the back of it. And is basically skiing as a dead body behind it. It's like, okay, that's pretty funny. And there's little moments like that all along. There's the presence of the absolutely just adorable Catherine Mary Stewart as the love interest for, for Jonathan Silverman. um You know, you gotta have something else in the plot beside that. Andrew McCarthy's playing the wild man character here. And, uh, you know, the, the bigger, the best, the part of the running joke that works the best is the assassin who's sent out to kill him, you know, keeps seeing him walking around basically in various ways and saying, how is he not dead yet? And goes completely insane trying to kill him. Yeah. But, yeah it gets dull kind of fast, and God help help you if you sit the weekend at bernie's 2, where you, even though everything is settled at the end of this one, basically, I guess he owes money to a voodoo cult, and so they cast a spell to make him be animated again, but only when music is playing. So he dances his way around because the idea is he'll dance his way towards where the money is hidden? I don't know. It's man. fucking awful. Just
0: when you thought this movie couldn't get worse. I mean,
1: you watch Revenge of the Nerds 2 before you watch Weekend at Bernie's 2 is all I'm saying.
0: Yeah, that's and that's saying something. Actually, I will I will say this, because credit where credit is due, the stuntman who's filling in for Bernie is amazing. They asked that guy to fall off of everything, to ram into everything, and he does it. And apparently... During production, suffered a lot of injuries, including broken ribs. Oh, I'm not from surprised. doing all these pratfalls. So,
1: kudos to you, man. You are a trooper. Yeah. Um, I guess see this mainly if you're just curious about the origin of the references, because this a lot of movies get compared even now to Weekend at Bernie's and in, in in the smaller sense and. It's not gonna. It's not gonna. It's not even offensive. This movie. You feel like if there's ever a movie that had the right to be offensive at points with a premise like this, it'd be this one. But it's trying so hard to have kind of a PG rating to it. Really. Yeah. It's like, you could have tried a little harder. Necrolarious.
0: Anyway, (laughs) weekend at Bernie's. From there, we're gonna talk about Memphis Belle, yet another film experiencing second life on Blu-ray.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of them this week actually of uh, like re-releases on Blu-ray, which I'm. Very pleased to, I'm always pleased to get these when, when they come out like this. Memphis Bell is based on the true story of, uh, the, the bomber plane in World War II. It's about the 25th and last mission of it. It was the first, uh, film, the first plane and group of, of, uh, pilots from America that managed to do their entire run to get through their whole thing and stay alive and not get destroyed. And it's, you know, on the eve of that, 25th run, and everyone's, like, rooting for them. Like, go, guys, you can do it. One last run, you'll become a symbol for America. No pressure. <laughs> At all. <laughs> um, but, you know, what? this is, what, 1990, and it's filled with a bunch of up-and-coming actors who never really up-and-came on the whole, but everybody is kind of familiar. Did you just say up-and-came on the whole? Yeah. Come on, man. Oh, phrasing? How is someone not going to pull that sound bite and use it against us? Phrasing? Damn it. Uh, Matthew Modine plays the, the captain of this group. Uh, Tate Donovan, DB Sweeney, Billy Zane, Eric Stoltz, Reed Diamond, Sean Astin, Courtney Gaines, Neil Guntall, Harry Connick Jr. Talk about your guy. list of cast members that any one of which looked like they were poised to go onto A list status at this point. And when Sean Astin ended up being the most successful out of all of you, you know. Yeah, it didn't really work out. You just plan.
0: see this waiting room in the early 90s with all these guys going, it's my turn next. My turn my next. My turn next. This, Come
1: on. This is going to be the one that Come puts me over the top. Let's do it. Eric Stiles is like, fuck you guys. I'm going to be in Back to the Future.
0: <laughs> <laughs> By that point, he was like, bitter about not being in Back to the Future. I was going to say, yeah, I guess this was after not being in Back to the Future. <laughs> Damn it. Maybe I'll be in Back to the Future 3. Maybe they'll replace Michael J.
1: Fox. <laughs> you know, I mean, if there's a problem with this film, it's just that you already know they make it. I mean that starts with spoiler knowing alert you that they make it uh even though you know people die on these things all the time just from flak and gunfire hitting the ships you know doesn't the ship can still make it some people make it it doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to make it and you know the first 40 minutes or so of this is trying to establish their characters, which are very kind of generically written guys, you know, soldiers on a base, get along, not get along, what have you. But once it actually gets on the mission itself, which is the bulk of the film, it actually becomes very tense, uh, even downright exciting at points, watching them go through this, a very, re- and a very interestingly realistic look on what it was like to be in a bomber back in the old days like that, all the shit they had to deal with. Um, so I, I can't say I didn't enjoy it. I genuinely did. It just took a little while for me to get to the point where I was in fact enjoying it as much as I was. Uh, I, it's certainly in a, you know, his, I, I mean, I've seen the Memphis, the real Memphis Bell at the Smithsonian. Oh, I forgot John Lithgow has a small role as the American general who's there basically trying to say, none of the soldiers are allowed to dance <laughs> because I said so. No, no, he's saying none of the soldiers are allowed to die oh. because we need them to tour the country afterwards and be heroes. <laughs> but there's also a full length documentary an hour and a half uh, i'm sorry a, a, a 40 minute documentary which was what was originally released as directed by william Wyler. wow uh from 1944 that contains real footage of aerial combat and it, and it chronicles that that in fact mission because there were a whole bunch of filmmakers around there prepared to be like hey you know this is historic kind of a about the coolest extra you could hope for on something like this
0: nice yeah well, i will check this out for sure and bringing Memphis Bell into the Terminal. Ah, see, an G- airplane, G- an
1: airport. I ah, get ah, it. That's ah, connected ah, by... There's it. a little bit of a flight over to the other one. It
0: was. It was a little bit of a long flight to get from one side of that joke to the other. But the Terminal.
1: <laughs> is this the first time this has been on Blu-ray? I can't imagine it is. I think it's the first time on Blu-ray. Really? It's, it's obviously been on DVD. I mean, this only came out in 2004. But it's a Spielberg But it's movie. a Spielberg film, and... You would... Yeah, you're right. That's bizarre to me. What's funny is, like, this is not one of the Spielberg films that made, that did as well with either critics or audiences when it initially came out, even though it's generally regarded to be a pretty goddamn good film. It's a very good film. I mean, you know, to say that 219 million box offers over 60 isn't as good as you expect from Spielberg says a lot for how much Spielberg movies generally Yeah, this is I... one of his, quote, flops. It's like, <laughs> really? Come on, guys. Uh, but... I think that this film, which is very Capra esque in its way, it's a, it's a romantic comedy in the sense of like an American romance, not a specific romance. Mm-hmm. There's bits of that in here, but really it's sort of like this whole, like, like I said, the idea of, uh, of Capra esque stuff. Very Capra. Uh, Tom Hanks is a traveler from a country you've never heard of. <laughs> the, the, I think they Krakosha. say it's one, the smallest country in the world, is what they call it. It's time.
0: apparently the size of a bag of chips, according
1: to Stanley Tucci. <laughs> he's arrived at the John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York, only to be told that his passport's no longer valid, because as he was mid-flight, his there was a civil war in his homeland, and the United States no longer recognizes his country as a sovereign nation, so he's not pre- permitted to enter the country or return home. He can barely speak English, like just barely, and he's got to hand over his pamphlet and ticket to the police there, so the only thing he can do is hang out at this big international terminal.
0: Yeah, it's it's a weird limbo, and I, keep in mind, this is based on a true story. Based on
1: a true story.
0: He was in this weird limbo. While while he was in the air, His there was a civil war. His country is no longer technically a sovereign nation, nor is he allowed into the United States, so he can't go back, and he can't enter the United States, so he literally has to live at... What they're hoping is that he'll try to exit the terminal after, like, a day, Yeah, and then, and then they- They They can arrest him and deport him.
1: Yeah, they can arrest him or not even deport him, put him in detention. Right. So it's not the airport's problem anymore. But he's not a stupid guy, despite the fact that Americans like to think that people who don't speak English are therefore dumb.
0: And he's He's, also inconquerably good. Like, he's just the best dude possible.
1: And he ends up, one by one, basically becoming the hero of everybody who works at this airport just by nature of that he's just such a good guy yeah uh, you know I mean talk about a bit of a Mary Sue <laughs> a bit yes <laughs> but like I said it's a romantic fantasy and you do have to suspend your disbelief for this movie and the things that happen and, and even the behavior of the film's villain played by Stanley Tucci who is a uh, th- he's basically just become director of customs and border protection at JFK and he wants to be he wants to prove himself and a little too much much. Yeah. And he's trying to come up with, you know, he he gets to the point where he's personally offended that this guy is still here and that he can't figure out a way yeah. to get him out of there. Um, and it's it's a little awkward at points, but it works. The movie on the whole works much better, more than it doesn't. This is actually, if I remember correctly, one of Cargill's favorite Spielberg movies. I didn't know. I that. remember him saying that at one point. And I was like, really. I'm still, as far as, like, outside of the big and obvious ones, Catch sure. Me If You Can is my favorite.
0: Oh, I love but Catch Me If so, You Can. Yeah,
1: so great. Catherine Zeta-Jones has a role in here as a sort of love interest here. She's
0: not really all that integral
1: to the plot. No, they could have. All equal. If, if I was going to say there's a problem with this film, it's that her whole part feels very written into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're trying to give him a reason to feel like he ne- he wants to, not necessarily better himself, but just... You know, a reason for him to learn, get better at learning English. Like she's basically a catalyst for him. She's yeah. she's a reason for him to learn to speak English better, to to make a little bit more money. Bit like, of a plot device. Yeah, yeah. She's she's definitely just like the the carrot on the end of the string for him.
1: But lots of good extras in here. Chi McBride, who I absolutely love, is a cargo handler and a friend of his. Diego Luna, for God's Great. sakes. Zoe Saldana had a very much younger role in here, and it, it makes me laugh because. Years later, of course, she ended up being in Star Trek, and in here she's a immigration officer who turns out to be a huge Trekkie. Yeah. Or, I'm sorry, Trekker.
0: A Trekker, yeah. <laughs> now, the, the seeds were planted long before Abrams' Star Trek.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is actually a pretty fun movie. It's not for everyone. Um, I, I know people who despise this film.
0: I, what it really impresses me about this movie is the way Spielberg found comedic set pieces within a very small space. Like, you're working out of this terminal, this – air. I mean, even an airport, even a big airport is still a very small place to create comedy. And I really like the way that they were able to do that and also just a
1: tremendous amount of heart. And this is a defining movie for my argument that Tom Hanks is the Jimmy Stewart of our our time you know, just throw this one out there. Oh, really? The terminal bitch. Okay. The, the, you win. The, and that's
0: the most angry anyone has ever gotten over this movie.
1: <laughs> Wait, not, that, that right there? Well, I'm, not, I'm saying that's not true. I personally witnessed someone getting pretty wow. angry over this movie. Oh, wow. But, okay. Um, I'll take that back. The, the, uh, it's got a lot of extras on here. It's, it, this is good because a lot of times this stuff is getting re-released now bare bones. And this is not, although these are all older supplements that are, pre, uh, that are still being presented in standard definition, but there's a look at the script, the story, uh examine of building the set, which is pretty goddamn elaborate, uh, a three-part feature where it looks at each one of the main characters in here, um, a look at the music of it, which is John Williams, which, you know, is worth by default. You've got to have that. So, and, uh, and a bunch of things from cast and crew with people sharing, like, on-set stories of things that happened. So, altogether, it's a good package. They certainly didn't put a lot of work into upgrading any of that stuff, but the film looks great on Blu-ray, so... It yep. should
0: have been on Blu-ray a long time ago. It
1: should have. If it wasn't, if I'm wrong, I might very well. No, have no, no.
0: I'm sa- no, you're not wrong. I'm saying it it's it should surprising. have been on Blu-ray already. It's, it's crazy to me that it hasn't.
1: It's surprising that it, that, that it wasn't. But.
0: Well, moving on from one Spielberg movie to another and a film I am embarrassed to admit I have not seen, Amistad.
1: Yeah, I had never seen this one either. It was one of the only Spielberg films I had never seen. Uh and it wasn't because I don't like black people or anything like that. I I do. I love black people. They're wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad you felt the need to state that. Yeah. Like for the for the for the record. No, I have one working in my home. And um <laughs> but no, i That's kidding. a cat, Chris. <laughs> I was kidding. I was going for the whole I'm a terrible white person. No, no I know, I <laughs> No, that came across very well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, good God! The letters.
1: Um, this was a 1997 historical drama film directed by Spielberg, based on a real uh, mutiny in 1839 by a group of slaves who took control of the slave ship La Amistad off the coast of Cuba. Uh, basically, they were illegally abducted from Africa, and because at that point there was all sorts of various treaties and rules. Let's and let's let's be real sort of here. Thing.
0: Everyone who was abducted from Africa into slavery. Was illegally abducted. We just amended the laws to be like, yeah, that's totally cool.
1: The the law was that they made it at one point like, okay, so we all know these people were originally abducted from Africa, but now we can't do it anymore. You're only allowed to be a slave if you're the child of a slave was the new rule. But Ah. there's a ton of money in slaves. So there was no shortage of people, especially apparently the Spanish who were deeply involved and said, fuck rules. They're fucking cattle. Uh, who who were like screw it we're going to keep making money off this so these slaves took over this this uh, boat but then were captured by the British fleet and it's about the legal trial I did not realize at all this was a a, a legal courtroom battle movie I had no idea that this is what this was about uh, as these slaves who've been captured are you know being argued for and against whether or not they should be considered to be property um, it's weird that. I guess in a smaller way, it seems like this had a lot of impact on the law at that time, even though obviously you know, clearly it was a, a bit later <laughs> right. that anything really important changed with slavery. But uh, it's got a great cast in it. Morgan Freeman is not playing a slave. He is a free man here uh, who works. I'm sorry. Freeman is playing a free man. Uh, Did, we were just going to gloss right over uh, that. Come on. Uh, who works for the lawyers who are, uh, are trying to defend the slaves. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is the main lawyer here and a great early role for McConaughey that I didn't even know about. Like, during the period that I always think of as fallow for McConaughey, here's a great role for him. Terrific performance. And one of the best reasons to see this, actually, in a lot of, you know, outside of you're a racist if you don't, Brian. Um, Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've been called a racist for for smaller reasons than that, so sure, why not? It's
1: true. I can't count how many times because I made one. Things I do like. Wait, how is that racist? Oh, no. People just love to play that card. I shaved my head once, and apparently that was enough. I think they sell whole decks of cards that are nothing but racist cards.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're really hard to work into your Stark deck if you're playing the Game
1: of Thrones Living Card Game. Yeah, or Magic the Gathering. There you go. Yeah, although it does trump everything. <laughs> 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 Let's see. I've got a ninth level Dark Wizard who's going to cast a Mega Fireball. Spread racist. God damn it! <laughs> damn you it! You can't keep playing that card every round. every time. <laughs> Uh, you know, this movie ultimately is a little dry, I'm <laughs> going to be honest. Like I said, didn't realize it was a courtroom drama. The, the Outside of Matthew McConaughey, the best thing in here is uh, Juman Hansu, who yeah. plays the, the the guy who becomes sort of the spokesman for the slaves, even though he doesn't speak English a, a
0: very well, if at all. It was the movie that introduced us all to Juman Hansu for and sure, though.
1: he is super intense in this role, and he gets across so much in a – and generally Spielberg – occasionally, but generally Spielberg chose not to even subtitle uh, the Africans and what they're saying to show their confusion because a lot of these guys couldn't even speak to each other. They're from entirely different tribes that didn't speak the same language all imprisoned together and have no idea how to communicate. Even within their cell, they've divided it up into regions that each one – each group, wherever tribe they're from, stay and they fight. They cross lines. And there's some amount of controversy here that it discusses at the time that was going on as well like, well – these slaves were sold to slavers by tribesmen in Africa. They were captured by the black black people in Africa and sold there. And so they bring that up as an element in this and discussing whether or not it should be okay for these people to be sold as slaves. And it's more of a portrait of a time and that sort of how complex the morality was that was going through people's head mm-hmm. than anything else. And yeah, it does drag on a bit longer than it's supposed to at 100, than it should at 154 minutes. The best thing here is just the good performances, lots of good uh, appearances by actors in here. Small appearance by Chiwetel Ejiofor, who of course goes on to be in, the lead in 12 Years a Slave, uh playing a uh ensign on a sold, on a ship that was originally from the same tribe as as uh Jaman Hansu so he can speak the language and they get him as a translator. Anna Paquin, a very young Anna Paquin as queen the II of Spain who doesn't do a lot, but her handmaiden
0: <laughs> who looks just like her that's where the interesting story is.
1: Uh, uh, Queen Padme of Spain. Yeah, nobody. Yeah. Okay. Uh, wait, no, that wouldn't be Anna Paquin. You're thinking of Kira Knightley. I don't fucking care, dude. It's the prequels. <laughs> I don't care if I get the order of, of no, no. I mean, I mean, it's Kira Knightley and Natalie Portman. Oh, yeah. still don't care. <laughs> That, like Anna McQueen didn't even fall into this, that equation. Oh, you're right. Yeah. No. Oh, sookie like, sookie so okay, so okay now. What are you talking about?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember so little of the prequels. This is actually a good thing. I'm glad I'm losing those memories. I know.
1: Right. <laughs> well, I'm losing my memories. There is a 26 minute making of on here and that's about it. I, I think this is, I don't know. For me, this was always one of those ones. There's a lot of great films about like uh, racism and slavery and ones that are very important to see. And I, I, despite great performances, this still feels like a lesser film of those to see. It's still a good movie, but even so, it, it, it's kind of a smaller chapter in Spielberg's catalog. Um, you're not going to not enjoy watching it if you see it. It's a very slick, professionally made film, but yeah, it's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a struggle to get through two hours plus about slavery. Yeah, I guess so. If it's not great. <laughs> if it's not great. Okay. Yeah.
0: I got you. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about some TV shows that are uh, getting some re-releases here. The first being "I Love Lucy." Do you? I do actually. I really do. Not only do I love Lucy, but I loved all of the offshoots: uh, the Lucy Show, the Lucy Does a Comedy Hour, uh, and Lord. there was another one. There was basically there were they had all these shows where like Lucy, it was like okay, so there's "I Love Lucy." There was the Lucy Show, the Lucy Does a Comedy Hour. And there was another one that I can't remember where they would just keep changing, like, her job. Like, she would be, like, she would work at a bank. She would work... uh, I have no idea. Yeah, no, like, all of this stuff was on Nick at Night, which is how I saw all of it as a kid. But but this was my favorite. Actually, no, my favorite was the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour because they would, uh, they were, like, living in this... It looked like they were living in the Corleone house on Lake Tahoe. It looked like that house. And then they would just have, like, all these celebrities, like, it's a really great episode with Tallulah Bankhead and... Uh, anyway, I'm I'm getting off the subject. Point is, I do, in fact, love Lucy.
1: Well, I actually, I mean, I watched the the uh, original show when it came out, but I remember there was a point I was not as happy with it because I don't even remember what it was I wanted to watch. But there was something on that was always on at the same time uh, that I really wanted to watch, probably something super stupid and geeky. And uh, my little sister wanted to watch I Love Lucy. So we fought endlessly about who had controlled the television. And it was usually when I Love Lucy was on. But I was wrong. And she was right because <laughs> *I Love Lucy* is one of the most memorable and beloved sitcoms of all time. Lucille Ball, an immense talent, one of the greatest female comedians who's ever lived. Totally, no question. In fact, and just a fascinating person. Like that, she had to fight the studio for getting this even made at all because they didn't want to have a white woman married to a, a Hispanic man. On
0: yeah, there. he was he was Cuban. He,
1: he was, was Cuban. <laughs> yeah, they did. They thought that was offensive.
0: Yeah, it, this was very early in, in the history of television, and not only is it remarkable for the fact that she did fight to have, you know, her married to a, a Cuban during the Cold War, by the way, which I thought is was absolutely incredible. But Desi Arnaz is responsible, like, the two of them together are responsible for a lot of different uh, innovations in sitcoms, and Lou Studios uh, produced a lot of really great shows after that, like... Yeah this is, this is really important to watch and understand for the history of television. And
1: there's so much here that we're like the first time anybody had ever done anything like this, that was copied so many times after that it might feel cliched now, but it's even so watching Lucille ball. Do it is a whole nother ball game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, now this is just the first season that's been re-released in a really pristine, extremely good Blu-ray set. I was kind of surprised to see them do this. Uh, At this point, like, how many of these are you actually going to sell since most of the fans of the show are dead? (laughs) Not Brian. Hello. I'm still here. He's an old man trapped in a young man's body.
0: Dude, my favorite shows are like, I Love Lucy, the Dick Van Dyke show, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah.
1: They did a great job, uh, fixing this up and it has got a fuck ton of bonus features on it. They are just not messing around. I mean, like, in, including the original pilot that apparently was lost for a long time, but, uh, they, they, they finally got another copy of it. Uh, and then the, uh, along with tons of other stuff, I mean, I mean, a ton. The coolest thing on here, I thought for me was there's actually a, uh, one of the episodes where there was somebody had snuck in a color camera and filmed the entire episode using a color camera from wow. different angles. And so it intercuts back and forth showing color footage of a famous episode. It's like, that's kind of a cool thing to have. <laughs> so, yeah, this is pretty good stuff. It's not the only one of these sets. There's three of these sets that came out at the same time of different TV shows. I don't want to spend too much time on them because – Honestly, I didn't watch any of the three of those. I didn't have time. At least I didn't watch them this at, time. Watch yeah. watched them originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is The Andy Griffith Show, season one. Andy Griffith Show, of course, was one of those. You, you, There was no way you could miss it because at one point it was literally all that would be on TV.
0: Which is funny because <laughs> I'm just now realizing that The Andy Griffith Show and The Dick Van Dyke Show were produced by Desilu Productions. Oh,
1: yeah. Uh this was came on between nineteen sixty 1960 and nineteen sixty eight with Andy Griffith playing a sheriff in a small community of Mayberry. Uh this was a Don early Don Knotts role where he was the kind of incompetent uh Andy?
0: <laughs> no that's Gomer Pyle, sorry. Uh,
1: uh yeah, I was gonna say, but that was a spin off of this too.
0: Yes it was. So um yeah. I wait, I thought wait, wait, I thought Gomer Pyle was a spin off of the uh, Phil Silver show. Or not mm-hmm. Phil Silver's
1: uh Oh fuck it. Uh, I wanna say he was on here. Mikhail's
0: name. I don't know. Anyway,
1: they ignore uh, yeah, me. Yeah, no, it was from here cuz it was a, a they had a backdoor pilot at the end of season 4 called Gomer Pyle USMC. There you go. All right. Uh so yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, I it, this is not one of my favorite shows. It was a little too who gives a fuck? A little too folksy. Who gives a fuck about these rednecks living out in the country and their yeah. little folksy
0: wisdom? It was a little too quaint. Like, I, and, and it's funny because it, it was born out of Andy Griffith's comedy, which is very much like grand old Opry, like I'm opening for Waylon Jennings type of like. Well, where I was growing up. Like, that's literally the comedy that he does. And it's like, they built an entire show around that. But it was
1: immensely popular. And I still enjoy... Because a lot of white people were watching TV. (laughs) I still enjoy Don Knotts on the show, who I thought was very funny. I'm a big Don Knotts fan. Um, And... Uh, of course this is Ron Howard's first big thing where he played little Opie little Opie (laughs) the best thing ever came out of that though was when Ron Howard was on Saturday Night Live being interviewed by Eddie Murphy who keeps insisting on calling him Opie (laughs) (laughs) it's like and he has a fit and runs off and (laughs) Eddie Murphy comes to the camera he's like I love my little Opie (laughs) Ah, nice uh and this has a good amount of bonus features as well nothing compared to uh the I Love Lucy set but um um, there's a, a whole thing where the Ron Howard's parents filmed home movies on the set of the Andy Griffith show. So there's a lot of behind the scenes type stuff that come from that. There's the return to Mayberry television movie that was made in 1986 with the Harlem
0: Globetrotters show up. And no, 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 no. no that's the Gilligan's. It'd be cool. Yeah,
1: set. I was going to wait, were they on that? Oh, the, do you not remember this? I, I don't. I've seen it. I don't remember.
0: There, like, in the later season of Gilligan's Island, people just start showing up on the island of no business being on a deserted island. Like, literally at one point, the Harlem Globetrotters show up, and it's like,
1: okay, if they're here, get us off the island. Now, say, is there anyone who can't find this island? Why are they <laughs> Why are they having trouble getting off it? I, I
0: really know. think that's why Lost exists, is because
1: uh, ortzi Kurtzman, and Lindelof were like, fuck Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Everybody finds that island. Now, the last set out is The Honeymooners, classic 39 episodes, which there were more episodes that were never aired. This is not included. Those are apparently not included with the set. Those were released separately later. I guess maybe somebody else has the rights to them. I'm not sure. Hmm. But this is all 39 that actually hit the air. And The Honeymooners is important because it's the baseline for every sitcom made after it. I mean, it really was the fat, unattractive, loud, Kind of stupid guy with an absolutely gorgeous wife. Yeah, the uh, 90s are full of rip-offs of the Honeymooners, guys. And the 90s, shit. We're still making them, dude. I yeah, mean, <laughs> that's I love true. when people say, whatever, that's just a rip-off of The Simpsons. And I have to raise my hand and go, I hate to tell you... <laughs> Everything was, a, including The Simpsons, was a rip off of The Honeymooners. Yep, it all ties back. Yeah, remember to the Jackie Flintstones? Gleason. Remember oh, the yeah. Flintstones? Was a not even trying to hide it. Rip off of The Honeymooners.
0: The reason Fred Flintstone's voice sounds like that, and the reason Wilma sounds like that, is because they are doing an impression of The
1: Honeymooners. You know, the idea was it was supposed to be like The Honeymooners set in, you know. Ancient times, which yeah, would would to say they don't exist yet, and it's just a bunch of dinosaurs
0: in Sarah Palin's past, where humans and dinosaurs live side by side.
1: Exactly. I don't know. The Honeymooners is a show I still find funny, and it's one of those that is kind of offensive at points if you think about it, because he's constantly threatening to beat his wife.
0: Yeah, it's it gets real uncomfortable. It was like one of these, and there was a great bit on Thirty Rock where they're making fun of the Honeymooners, and and it was uh, Jack Donaghy and and Liz Lim, and and, and I guess it was like a, a throwback, but it was like one of these days I'm gonna drown you in the bathtub and say a homeless person did it it's just like what <laughs>
1: uh there's a lot of extra features on this one as well in fact this one is really packed with it lots of interviews with the great jackie gleason who so really good. was like the dominant comedian in many ways of his time like the, the guy everybody loved except for women who were terrified of him yeah and, right. <laughs> um like a, there's a whole look at an episode the the ad- adoption where jackie gleason actually joins in with art carney and audrey meadows uh doing a musical comedy version of the honeymooners? There's a 35th anniversary special and a 50th anniversary special. Unfortunately, hosted by uh uh what's his name? The guy we Paul Bart, Mark Molkop, Oh God, Kevin James. Yeah, Kevin it's like
0: James. I know you owe your existence to the honeymooners, but you do not deserve to introduce the honeymooners. I know.
1: You um, hack. Yeah, like I said, there's very few sitcoms that don't owe everything to The Honeymooners. So this is, I mean, it's not just a historical curiosity. It really is a funny show. And Gleason and Art Carney were incredibly talented comedians. So, yeah, well, you know, import, a good thing to have hey, in your Rovey collection boy. if you want to understand or study television arts on any level.
0: Yeah. Now, I just, now, I it's funny. I can't do an impression of Art Carney without thinking I'm just doing Barney Rubble. <laughs> hey, Rubbley boy. Hey, hey. That's true. <laughs> Anyway, um, we're going to move on to our last title, which is also going to be our Give Giveaway. Away. And this week, this is really cool.
1: We are giving away a Hammer film. Not just in. Not one of those crappy little lesser ones. We're giving away one of the ones people actually like. <laughs> That's Yeah, exactly. This has
0: been released on Blu-ray by Synapse, and it is Countess. Dracula.
1: Starring one of the most popular scream queens of her time. Ingrid Pitt. Ingrid Pitt. Who was only actually in maybe five films, but like they were all considered to be pretty. I mean, like the Wicker Man was one of them, for instance. Yes. And, and the vampire lesbians. Uh, you know, stuff there is still look back at like, oh, that was one of the good ones from Hammer. Uh, and then
0: she And was, Dr. Shivago, by the way, she's- uh, Oh, well, she's, she, she's an extra yeah. in Dr. Shivago. No,
1: well, uh, uh, what's the Clint Eastwood one she's in? Uh, uh, she's in like a big Clint Eastwood war movie, and I forget, well, where Eagles- Dare. Where Eagles- There, yeah. Yeah, she's one of the leads in that. But, but she's great here playing, let's face it, she's not Countess Dracula, she's the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. And If yeah. you've ever studied Dracula lore, she's based on, uh, a real-life woman who was a. Obsessed
0: with sort of this fountain of youth idea that bathing in the blood of virgins would keep her young forever. It's
1: one of the ten every horror storyline is based on it Storyline,
0: Yes, exactly. A woman
1: being vain leads to horror.
0: It's it's the honeymooners of
1: horror stories. <laughs> uh, and, you know, obviously this is, you know, it's a Hammer film, so it's not going, this is a real historical story. This is loosely based on this idea because – not only is she, like, in real life where she hallucinates, she thinks she looks younger with the blood of virgins, but she actually physically turns into the younger, hotter Ingrid Pitt, uh, and starts having an affair with a guy who had, basically her husband had died, so a guy who was the son of her husband's best friend has come to, come to the, the village to, because they're reading his will, and apparently he was left a good portion of his money. And uh, she's she thinks he's hot. She's like, oh, I'm just going to become my own daughter, as it were, and hook up with this guy. There's lots of great characters throughout this thing being alternately uh, trying to help or being malicious. And it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, no, this this movie has all of the things that we love about the the best of the Hammer films. It has sort of the the creepy castles. It has the women whose breasts are always just, like, pretty much entirely exposed at all points. Uh, It has a lot of that. I really like, I actually really like Ingrid Pitt as a Dracula character, uh, as opposed to some of the lesser Hammer films, where it's just like, it really doesn't matter, all you really are here for are the tits and the blood. Like, I really like her obsession with her youth, and I like the way they do it, where, like, at the beginning of the film, she gets a little bit of blood on her cheek, and then her face, you know, and this is when she's older, before she's, experience the drinking of the blood. So like half her face becomes young and the other half is still old and I thought that was a really cool effect. Oh yeah. Uh, but so there's so much to like about this movie beyond sort of the the, the baser enjoyments of of a lot of the lesser Hammer well, films.
1: Beautiful sets for one yes. thing. They They found this gorgeous castle and then built around it to like you know yeah, obviously, they, they. a lot of this is not filmed in the castle. They built these sets, but they were so elaborate. Um, like you said, Ingrid Pitt's performance is so strong in here. She's just like, it's a standout role for her. The guy who plays sort of like her head steward, Captain Dobie, Nigel Green, is wonderfully diabolical in this.
0: I also found the guy that she's in love with, you know, once she yeah. discovers her youth, reminded me a lot of Prince Oberyn from Game of Thrones. Oh, right. I was like, he's he's wearing shirts that are as billowy, and he kind of looks like him. And his he has this one speech where she's like... This is, they're going through portraits in the hall and she's like, this is my grandfather. He loved women. He died in the arms of a kitchen maid. And the guy just looks and goes, I have so much respect for him. That's the best way to die. And I'm like, that's something Prince Oberyn would say. (laughs) That's true.
1: (laughs) So good. And there's a nice extra feature on here that takes a look at the career of Ingrid Pitt and why she's so beloved by people, despite having such a short career, really. Why people are like, she was one of the best scream queens ever.
0: It's a pretty interesting documentary. And then there's this archival interview with her. And the best part of that is at one point, the guy interviewing her asked something to the effect of, when you're doing these horror movies, do you take them seriously? And her response is, of course I take them seriously. What's wrong with you?
1: <laughs> and I was like, yes! That was- that's the best and only answer. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm a little offended that you even asked that. You're <laughs> asking a woman who is pr- predominantly an actress in horror films if there's some reason why she shouldn't take these films seriously. No, I just
0: collect the check and go, home. Oh, fuck you. Of yeah. course I take them seriously. Exactly. A stupid question. But yeah, this is a, a great release. Really cool. Uh, one of the best hammer films in my, in my estimation. And we're giving away a copy!
1: Wait, are we? I thought I got to keep two. You do not
0: get to keep two. But they
1: were gonna make awesome bookends.
0: Sorry. And as you guys know, we've been doing sort of writing prompt giveaways on Twitter. So the first thing you're gonna wanna do is follow the website at One of Us Net on Twitter. And then what I want you to do is I want you to tweet at us with your weirdest or you may consider it best, but your weirdest Hammer movie title that you can think of, The Descended Testicle of Dracustine. Yeah,
1: that's not an actual movie. In other words, one you came up with that sounds like a Hammer film.
0: Yes, one that sounds like it Although, could be a Hammer if title. There,
1: if you find it, turns out there isn't an obscure Hammer film with that title, we are totally watching that bitch.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> so do that. Uh, hashtag that Countess Drac... You know what? Hold on. Hammer giveaway. Let's just hashtag it Hammer giveaway. It's easier. Uh, so yes, give us what you would think of at uh, your creative and weird... Uh, Hammer movie title, hashtag that Hammer giveaway, we'll pick our favorite, and that person will get a copy of this on Blu-ray, open to U.S. residents only.
1: I like how you throw that in the there. The legalese at the end. Yeah. yeah like, you, you've literally made your voice the fine print.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny because once you start running a website,
1: you learn what covering your ass really means. Oh, yeah. Because otherwise you end up shipping it to Kazbekistan.
0: Yes. Krakosia, which isn't even a country anymore. So it just goes to Tom Hanks at the airport.
1: Yeah. Anyway, that's the end of our show. It is. We don't have any more movies to review.
0: We got nothing else to do, man. Nothing else to talk about this week.
1: Well, then we should just end it.
0: We should just end it. All
1: right,
0: goodbye. No, hold on. Uh, We're available on uh, Amazon. No, let me try this again. We're available on iTunes. We're available on Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter, at DigiNoiseCast, or the website, at OneOfUsNet, or us individually. I'm at Salisbury. I'm at Chris ChrisCoxCurtic. Okay, goodbye. Hold on, damn it. Please become a subscriber. Check out our post and our video right at the top of the page. It explains to you all the various incentives that you can get at the various levels. We're really trying to um, you know, trying to promote that. Not only that, but we've got a special subscriber-only giveaway of a the Mondo Jurassic Park soundtrack LP. That's
1: the coolest-looking vinyl I have ever seen.
0: It's amazing. Like,
1: the painted vinyl, the way they made it look like a dinosaur, that's really fucking cool.
0: Yeah, and there, there's a link right at the bottom of this page, too, to get to that post and, and read all about it. So do that. But until next time, I'm just going to end the show the way I usually do by reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From criterion to catastrophe, we review them all. Goodbye. Good night, Gracie. Sleep.
1: That was me sleeping very fast. I guess.